And we're live. We're we're live. I'd like the yeah. at home audience to know that I'm holding a beep beep beep. I'm holding a mint chocolate fairy tale sprite. Yeah. I'm gonna enjoy the shit out of that. <laughs> Have you had one of those brownies before? Never. I, I've never seen it before. It looks uh tantalizing. Yeah. You like <laughs> you like that when I say tantalizing yeah it's a great it's a sexy word mm -hmm. <laughs> it really is yeah it really is well sean yeah thank you so much for coming on this show no worries um sean and i met earlier this year we uh we worked together at the vale mountain school mm -hmm. but uh sean has been all over <laughs> yeah yeah i've been all over yeah. all over well you know relatively speaking yeah I'm sure some of our kids have been all over the world. Oh, well, yeah. But that's the cool thing about our job is hopefully in the future we'll get to go with them. <laughs> yeah, they, all they need to do is invite us. That's right. A little shout out, a little promo there. Mm -hmm. Any, yeah. any yeah. VMS kids listening? Any VMS kids listening, just, you know. Buy the ticket. Invite us. Zach yeah. and I, we'll go. Yeah, we'll go. A ski cool. trip in Austria. We'll we'll chaperone. That's we'll, right. We'll provide transportation. We'll cook your we'll cook your meals. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is invite. You just just send us the evite 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 evite. That's even. what you kids Whatever. are into. But Sean and I share a similar background in that we've uh, we both had experiences in the Boundary Waters mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. canoe trips. Yeah, I was fortunate to kind of grow up in Minnesota. And so the Boundary Waters was kind of a, a play area for my family and I. I was fortunate to be brought up there as a young kid and just kind of, you know, exposed to all that like right away. Dang. Yeah, I think my first trip up there was uh, when I was about 10 years old. What city are you from? In well, I, grew, I was born in Staples, which is like, I don't know, swamp farm country, <clears throat> middle of Minnesota. Wow. It's like uh, it used to be one of the. My grandfather always tells me it was one of the fifteen or top ten most dangerous towns in the world, or not Staples? the not the world, but America. Back really? in the, yeah, back in the um, I think the thirties and forties, and because it was like the first stop on the train after Chicago. Whoa! Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a train town. And so people would get off from Chicago and. Mm -hmm. Cause a ruckus. Wow. Yeah, my uh, I come from a long line of uh, train drivers. No way. Mm -hmm. My grandfather um, retired from Burlington Northern after 40 years of driving a train from Staples to Minot. <laughs> is Burl I don't know what Burlington Northern is. Is that a? It's a train company. Like a com like they car like a cargo train or a do you passenger? remember? Do you ever have you ever seen like the green engine? It was green with the the white lettering on the side. I, yeah, I probably have. Yeah, the, uh, the white lettering was B N Burlington Northern. What what do your what does your family say about driving a train? What is it like to drive a train? Boring. Really? Mm hmm And then really exciting at times, and loud. You know, you get a lot of train drivers get that. Uh, what is that? The ringing in the ears. What do they call that? Ten tinnitus. Tinnitus. Tendinitis. No, tinnitus. Tinnitus, yeah. I yeah. think, or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. Yes, yeah, tinnitus. We can fact check that after the. I'm pretty sure it's tinnitus. Tendinitis is. Tendi what, that's a tendon. That's, that's a muscle. Yeah, thing. That's what happens when you get old. Yeah. 
But yeah, uh, loud, you know, and it was back in the day, there was way more to it, you know. I, I don't imagine my my grandpa was shoveling coal, but, you know, he was um, he was more in charge and then towards, it's gotten all automated, you know, basically mm-hmm. you're just sitting there now. And they used to have a caboose and... Yeah. Yeah. My dad rode in the caboose back in the day. He was... As a career? Uh, yeah, for a couple of years. I mean, everybody in that town at some point either worked on the line, you know, they worked on the rail, or they were on the engine, or they were in the caboose, you know, and then they did away with the caboose. What would you do? What do you, what does one do on the caboose? You literally just chill out. Really? Like yeah, that? Like you're just hanging out. Wow. Yeah, making sure. Did they do any kind of support for the? I mean, I can't. I don't really know. I mean, yeah. I don't have a lot of stories about it. My grandpa tells me stories about the engine, but um, you know, they hit deer and stuff. But he's got. I I don't remember any stories of like hitting a car or like all that kind of mm. stuff. You know, that you see, no accidents. Well, what was the exciting part? Because you said okay, long like periods of boredom, and then few. Mm-hmm. What what? Uh, moose probably exploding a moose. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh. That would be a little exciting. Yeah, I mean, guts on the window. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Dang. Gore, just gore. Oh, no. You know, it's like a horror. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, definitely a horror show every now and then. So is that Staples, Minnesota? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there still a train that runs through there? Yeah, but Amtrak still drops off there, but the train doesn't <clears throat> really stop in Staples anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably fifteen years ago, it kind of stopped. Okay. Mm-hmm. My grandpa's been retired for a while. So they, they moved him to Fargo, North Dakota there mm. for, uh, you know, about five years there towards the end of his career because they weren't stopping in Staples no more. Mm. And Minot is a just a little town in the middle of North Dakota. It's called Minot? Minot, M-I-N-O-T. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real boring run. Whoa. Nothing to see. Mm. So you can imagine. But that's where I was born. I only lived there uh, for five years. Okay. My grandparents, and my grandpa's still there. My grandma just passed last um, October, but mm. um, I still have a lot of family there. And it's two hours north of Minneapolis. And so we, my mom and I, moved to Minneapolis. And then she that's where she's from, like the cities. Mm. And then I grew up in Robbinsdale which is just outside of Minneapolis. Okay. Kind of on the edge. Like literally the Minneapolis city limit was right behind my house. Wow. And then I lived by a hospital, and that was my playground. Like well, in the hospital? Yeah, huge North Memorial Hospital. No way. Yeah, helicopter, all that kind of jazz. What? Like you you would go inside the... Yeah, I would just go in there and <laughs> mess around as a kid. Like No way. Yeah. Go see, they, you know, go see the babies. <laughs> go see. They used to have these pretty girls. They were called candy stripers. What? Mm-hmm. What is what? What? A candy striper? Yeah. What is that? It'd be a you know, be a younger woman in a red and white dress, and uh-huh. they'd be walking around the hospital giving out candy, making people happy. No way. And there was a gift shop. I'd always just hide out in there, and then they had a cafeteria with like soft serve ice cream. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Would they ever kick you out? No. There's no monitoring. Nobody knew. <laughs> they just assumed. You were there visiting or something was going oh, on, you know. Wow. Yeah, it was real. It's kind of my first just like ent- entrance into just kind of, you know, I don't know how you, what would I say? It was like 
faking it, you know? You just fake it to make it oh, in there, you it. know? Like, you I just, belong here. I be- yeah, just blending in. Right. Was oh, my that's my first experience. Blending in, you know? Oh, that's cool. And I watched a lot of Doogie Howser. Well, I don't know what that is. Doogie Howser, MD, was this show where it was a boy genius who became a doctor when he was, like, 15. Oh, so it was a hot show in the Got 80s. It. Yeah. Some and of you some of you out there listening <laughs> will know Doogie. But you know, Doogie Hauser ended up being um well, he's on a bunch of shows now. He's famous. What's his name? Uh Neil Patrick Harris. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's him. He was in Oh the, oh god. Yeah, it. you know. Okay, he is. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That was his okay. early career. Got it. So, you know, I modeled my behavior after him. Mm. Um, and then, uh, oh no, no, I definitely modeled my behavior after the A team. What's, oh, the, yeah, <laughs> BA Baraka. Dude, I'm, my, is that Mr. Another, T? My movie and TV yeah. show literacy is really bad. That's okay. I'm here. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, so I grew up with the Knight Rider and all that, you know. G.I. Joe was pretty huge. Oh, nice. Okay. Familiar with that one. Mm-hmm. I grew up with, uh, some cool kids on the block. You know, they were, I had some good friends. We had a lot of Super Soaker Battle Wars, and we'd go, you know, Nordic skiing in the winter and take the trucks off our skateboard and snowboard. And uh, none of us played hockey because we couldn't afford it. We were we grew up oh. kind of poor. So that's that's like a rich person sport. Yeah, my mom was still going to college when I was living there. She started in her thirties. Wow. So yeah, she was a single mom for a while, and then married my stepdad. Got it. When I was six. And then we had they had my brother like a year later. Oh, I got it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, so we just lived there until high school. But I grew up playing basketball. I was oh sick. Yeah, it was that's all we did. You know, was that like release for you? Go yeah, shoot some hoop? yeah. My best friend and I, we would just we had lights and we'd play all night. And he had an adjustable hoop, and uh, we would just jam. Oh, you play at his house? Like yeah, he had a little hoop. Or- it was just him and I. We'd always. Pretend we were Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. <laughs> so we were co-opting all the time. And then we'd be wow. the other team. You know, I'd Whoa. be Alonzo Mourning. We'd be the Charlotte Hornets. Whoa. And then uh, we'd play all night. We'd play uh, rollerblade hockey with the garage doors. So the oh. garages would face each other and they'd be perfect goals wow. with a tennis ball. And you could, you know. Super creative. Yeah, we were pretty creative. And then, um and then yeah that all and then I was pretty good at basketball so I was gonna go play at a private school <clears throat> called De La Salle which is right downtown Minneapolis okay but um at the same time my mom had gotten a better job and so she kind of started moving up and we the family started to have a little bit more money and we decided that we wanted to get out of the neighborhood got Robindale Robinsdale Robinsdale yeah it was gentr it was strangely gent like the old there was a lot of like ancient people living there got it and uh the houses were pretty small and uh mm-hmm. and then we just like decided we wanted to move to a better school system so i went to a high school there for one week and uh you know i had gotten into a fight in my eighth grade year too and uh started hanging out with some kids that were probably well they did turn out to be bad news and mm-hmm. i got into nordic skiing actually that While year. all this is going on. While all this is going on, my uncle, uh, Tim. Wait, is this after you moved? No. That, or this is before? Eighth grade is before you Eighth met. grade is before I moved. So okay. I, I moved my, literally the first week of my freshman year. Okay. I moved out to the suburbs, northern suburb of Minneapolis, and it was uh, Blaine. Got it. And I went to Blaine High School, and I, uh, I, I joined the Nordic team. 
Because uh-huh. my, my uncle took me to uh, where the Berkey Biners held in Wisconsin. He took me for a whole weekend to Telemark Lodge, and he taught me to ski in like a weekend, and I just fell in love with it. Wow. He gave me uh, a, we used to have these um, uh, Walkmans, they were called. Yeah, like for music. And, mm-hmm. You put yeah. a tape in there. Yeah. And he bought me one, and he said, this is how you get into Nordic. You listen to music while you ski in the sun. It's beautiful. You Whoa. enjoy it. You know, and there were hills, so I was yeah. getting it was hilly and exciting, and you know, I was listening to Paul Simon Graceland and wow, just loving it. Sunny weekend, and that was cool. And so, you know, he got me into. I got some fun stories about him. Um, he was he was kind of like my father figure, you know. Got it. Uh, my stepdad uh, was he worked in a machine shop mm. his whole life. Wow, like he was a quality control engineer inspector inspecting parts in a machine shop yeah and so he was uh he was a perfectionist so then my uncle was a dentist out in the suburb like this beautiful not even really a suburb of minneapolis just kind of the country and so he had tennis court in the backyard and you know Mm. they had some acreage and he was just really cool um he was, you know, my my stepdad was around, but he worked so much, right? Over time, you just had this time with your uncle, and yeah, you know, he was around. I mean, I mean, growing up, he was pretty hard on us too. Like, I was kind of a heavier kid, so he wanted mm-hmm. me to work out, mm-hmm. and so is that why he got you out on the skis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had back surgery in seventh grade, so I had oh. rods put in my back. No way. Mm-hmm. So- I had surgery in second and seventh grade. For scoliosis. Wow. Yeah, so I had rods put in. And so, like, um, one of the ways to recover was I had to walk a lot. And mm. then after I was able to, then my uncle was like, now I'm going to teach you a Nordic ski. Wow. You know, because I knew I had to keep fit. Like, yeah, you When couldn't... you get rods in your back, you got to make, like, fitness has to be part of your life or you'll have back pain. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Did it limit the sports and activities that you could participate in? That's a great question, Zach. Um, yes. I I was on the football team uh, in seventh grade before I went in for surgery, and then they told me I could never play football again. Oh. And, I, and I, I took that, you know, a little both ways. I really enjoyed playing defense and, and hitting people because uh, I was kind of an angry teenager. Yeah. Um, so they took that away, and then I just put all that energy into Nordic skiing. And Dang. Yeah, it was actually kind of funny because I had bought a huge music system, and I was really into music, and um, I was playing my music too loud up in my room, you know, just being a rebellious, yeah. angry teenager. Like, listen to this. Yeah. yeah. yeah rage I'm, Against the Machine. Yeah. I was just cranking it. <laughs> you know, just cranking the rage. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, Zach did. That's a good stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my stepdad came upstairs. He's like, "Turn, you gotta turn that down." And then I turned it up. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the message, man. And so he took it all. Testify. Away, put it in the box. Down. He took the. Yeah, he, he took my. I had oh, a tower. Man. I had two tower speakers, Ooh. an amp, everything. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah, it was like overkill. Yeah, I mean, he come home from a long day of work and yeah, have to listen to that. I can so, only imagine. So, what did you do to replace that? Did so you- then, yeah, so then, like literally two days later, I I lived pretty close to school, so I'd walk to school sometimes. You know, it was like a mile and a half, and I was walking home, and um, I was kind of bra- I just started hitchhiking for no reason. 
Just one day. Just one day I was walking home and I just decided to throw my speed thumb up. Speed this up. up. <laughs> Let's speed this up, yeah. And a pretty girl pulled over and picked me up. Wow. And she was a senior and she was on the Nordic team. Oh, look at that. And she was like, hey, you should join the Nordic team. Oh, man. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I will. And then we went and saw Braveheart. No way. And you I, and the girl picked yeah, you up? Yeah, yeah. That same not, night? Not that night. Okay. Another day. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Did, you guys, how, did you guys like exchange... Uh, I was in love with her, but I was a freshman and she was yeah. a senior, so it wasn't happening. Well, how did you guys communicate to meet up again? Um, we just went to the same school and, you know, she was around. And then we went to Nordic. I went to the, well, I started running cross country because that's what she had to do. Mm. We had a cross country running team. Like that was required to be on the Nordic? It wasn't team? required, but it was highly encouraged. So okay. I started I running. I hate running. Yeah. I'm top heavy. So is it, is it hard on your back as well? Kind of, yeah. Now I don't run. Okay, and I never ran. Like they'd run on pavement, and I was like, forget that. Right. Too many shock waves to the spine. So I, I you know, I did it because I had to. It was good training, but um, so then I, uh, I just fell in love with it. Like that, everybody that was on the team was really into it, and the, the Olympics. You know, Bjorn Dali was huge and from Norway back then, and we just, I mean. You know, I just came from my coach of my Nordic team, and they're not—they're into it. They like the sport, but they are not into like watching it and like the whole culture. They're getting more in. They like the culture here in Colorado, okay. But in Minnesota, it's like the next level—the culture and the watching of the sport, yeah. Like knowing all the skiers and Mm. you know, and then the wax. I mean, how often do you have to do that? Wax the. So that was the thing nowadays. Like these kids, I wax all their skis, and they all have to wax with the same wax to make it even for everyone. Okay. Uh, which I like, you know. But when I grew up, it was every every skier for themselves, you know. Oh, like yeah. So I got into the chemistry of the oh, wax. Who's got and, the best wax? Yeah, and then not, like Colorado, and nowadays it would be about who had more money, you know. Right. And so back then it was. I mean, there were some really expensive waxes <clears throat> that we'd all share, you know, but like you could get in and, you know, it was more just about putting layer after layer and waxing, scrape. Like I would wax and scrape my skis, you know, five times a week. Dang. Because just getting those skis so fast. And it was, you know, you're skiing on golf courses, which are hilly, but, you know, it's a, a lot more about the ski. I think here it's, it doesn't matter so much about, the the wax on the skis is the the physical ability, you know. Okay. Um, but it still gave you that edge. It gave you an edge, and so I knew that, and we all did. So we put our time in. You know, we all had wax benches in the basement. Wow. And then we'd have it was kind of a cool like a lot of kids here are so into uh, so many different things, but I only focused on Nordic. You know, like so, once you found it, this yeah. is like. And yeah. you knew, it sounds like you knew pretty quickly after you started doing it that it was something special. Mm-hmm. And it was a good group of guys. And then they were super nerdy and whatever, but um, they had passion for the sport and we got along and we got to, we got really lucky. Like our coach and uh, the, his younger brother was on the team still and they had a cabin up north. So a lot of about Minnesota is going up north, you know, because mm-hmm. like in the cities, you're surrounded by pretty flat. I mean, it's beautiful, but. There's like farmland just to the south and to the west, and and then you get up, you go north, and it gets more like forested and hilly and like Duluth and all that. Where yeah. I ended up going to college, 
This is mm. more extreme. And, and so we'd go up to Giants Ridge, which is like a three-hour drive, you know, on a Friday night, and we'd see the northern lights, and we'd like Dang. maybe see a timber wolf on the way and like Whoa. tell crazy stories and get nerdy on aliens. And like there was just that whole Nordic culture. And then the coolest thing was that we had this cohesion where we'd go and they had an A-frame cabin there. Like that was the family had a cabin there. You know, so we'd all stay there and there was a loft and all the guys would camp out in the loft and we'd cook big spaghetti dinners and then we'd go all ski together in the moonlight, like wow. wool, like a wolf pack, you know. That's sick. Like we'd ski in the dark, like no lights, just moonlight. Whoa. And that, actually um, that's where the, um, the U.S. Olympic team trained for a long time was at Giants Ridge. Mm. So it was legit. Like there was 55 plus kilometers of world-class skiing right there. Wow. Actually, what's crazy is my mom's there right now. She, no, does she know she's, she's Nordic? Yeah, my mom is great. You know, she's a she's a trooper. She loves Nordic. My whole family, yeah, wow. on that side, my mom's side, and that like my grandpa Nordic with me until he was in his early eighties. Wow, he died on his bicycle. Like so, sports were he, like athletics were huge wow. in our family. So it was just like. It just fit everything I was looking for, and I just, I loved it because it was all about being strong and powerful, and we'd weightlift, and you know. So I went to Blaine High School there, and like I met my best friend, and he was on the downhill team. So then I had this whole connection to the downhill team too, mm. and I had never even downhilled until I was eighteen. I didn't downhill until the day after I competed in state. My uncle was up there, a different uncle. He was into downhill. And uh, he rented me my first pair of skis and I skied in jeans, my letter jacket, you know. And the downhill there is like 700 feet vert maybe. Okay. But they had train park and all that and a couple black diamonds. <laughs> so well, is the culture, is the downhill culture different than Nordic? It's different. Yeah, they were always cooler. You know, they were the cooler kids for sure. So Got it. it was good to have that connection too. Yeah. And so I was friends with all the downhillers and they'd make fun of me. And then right. and they'd all talk about eating ice cream every Friday night uh -huh. and I'd be eating spaghetti and right. eating salad and being all healthy. And they'd just be like, I'm, I'm fat training. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go faster through them gates. Yeah. I put on some weight. Oh, got it. You know, and then they'd do dry land training in like two days. Get and worked. They'd, they'd get worked. They'd be right. like, man, be like, you guys are weak. You guys are weak. Weak. No moonlight, no moonlight. No moonlight, yeah. yeah. They were cool though, but they had to ride a bus. Like, so to downhill from Blaine, you had to ride a bus for an hour plus to just to get to the mountain yeah in the mountain <laughs> to oh, get to oh. troll hogging yeah, okay. which was like a tow rope and literally um, like troll hogging is is a quaint little ski area yeah it's really cool I ended yeah up, yeah when and then they all raced for the university of minnesota oh yeah so they all raced in college and uh, i did too i went with all the guys from my nordic team but i went to a community college way up north, even further north than Duluth in the Iron Range. And wow. I, I lived in that cabin that I was going to. The A-frame? Yeah, I lived in the oh, A-frame. And in the A-frame, we had a Bose surround sound system. Oh, God, that'll do it, man. And we, we played hours and hours of GoldenEye. <laughs> <laughs> like the Austin Powers. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like what are songs on that? No, like the Nintendo game. Oh, oh. Yeah, we would play it. Bond for hour. Like that's oh, what that's we did. Sick. And, and then we train and then we all ended up going to college up there. And mm. um, I had a minivan. And so uh, our school, Masabi Range Community College, shout out. 
um, I would uh, drive all the whole team to school every morning, 35 miles to school. And then we'd all go to school and then we'd all go back and train. Like you, in, what do you mean you drive them to school? Like everyone would pile in my van and go to school. From staying at your place? From staying at the cabin. Oh, that's sick. You would have 30, you could sleep 35? Hmm? Oh, it was 35 miles away. Oh, 35 miles away. There were only five of us. Five of you. Okay, I got yeah. it. Okay, that makes sense. Five of us would pile in my van. Okay. And then we'd come back and we would train. And the way we would train is we would hike with guns and we would shoot uh, grouse. And wow. then we'd skin them like and shotguns? eat them. Yeah, like shotguns. So we'd hike all the trail, all the Nordic trails. Wow. Were really hilly and we'd hike them and then we'd shoot grouse and go home and eat them. Wow. And then we'd swim across uh, Wine Lake, with W-H-I-N-E, Wine Lake. Uh, was right next to the cabin, and we'd swim across the lake and back. Dang. And then we got roller skis. I mean, we all had roller skis, but the school's football team was so bad that they gave us all the money that the football team would have used to go to playoffs or something like that. <laughs> yeah, not happening. Not happening. <laughs> <laughs> so we were legit. We had warm-ups and brand-new gear and Dang. all that, and then it happened to be 1999, and it didn't snow. What do you... It didn't snow at all. That year? They canceled every race. Oh, my gosh. And so um, we only went to nationals Whoa. out in California, and that was the only race anyone did. Like the whole year? Mm-hmm. And oh, we all we all man. quit the team. And uh, we were so poor, we ended up moving into uh, low-income housing on the north side of uh, the Iron Range, like Virginia. The town was called Virginia. Mm. And we lived in Mountain Iron. It was like probably the meth capital of northern Minnesota. I don't know. At that time, it was kind of shady business there. But uh, I've remained focused. And and then we ended up going to Duluth to hang out, you know. like So Duluth was probably like an hour and a half drive from Got where it. we lived. And Duluth is like a bigger town, big you know, city yeah. of 90,000. Beautiful and city. It's super beautiful. They call it mini San Francisco. And now it was, you know, it's big time now with the outdoor scene. Uh, it was rated one of the top town. I think it was rated the top town to move to for outdoor activities. I believe it. So we ended up going there to hang out, and then I met a girl, of course, and so I ended up moving there. And now, what what year? Uh, this is like end of that, towards into college. No, that was just my freshman year. I only oh, did freshman one. Year. I only did one year there at the community college. Got it. And then, uh, and then I moved, and I got accepted to the University of Minnesota Duluth. Did you want to leave the community college after one year? Was yeah, that the plan? I just was, and actually, I got I got really into see you like this. I got really into snowboarding. Oh, sick! Yeah, yeah because because there was no snow, but they made snow. So mm-hmm. Little Giants Ridge had snow, you know. So instead of skiing, we just all went snowboarding. Got it. And I got really into the terrain park and jumps, and they had a little half pipe and all that. That's sick. So I got into that, and then uh, we ended up taking a trip out to Big Mountain. Um, that was my first trip out west. Where is that? Montana. Oh. Mm-hmm. We drove my minivan and uh, we spent three days riding powder. Like it just expanded my whole worldview on, you know, what I, what I would want later in life. And mm. uh, so then, you know, we came back and um, got a lot of fun stories from that one too. But we got back to Duluth and, um, and then, you know, I, I ended up, I had a few friends that were going to school there from from high school. And so I ended up I never lived in a dorm. I lived in a cabin and then I went and lived in a house like Whoa. at at UMD 
and uh, it was funny because I, I met up with this buddy of mine, Andy, and he said, yeah, we got a room in the house, you know, and I got in the, the car and to meet all the guys and we were like driving around and talking and stuff and I leaned over and I looked at Andy and I said, well, dude, what's up with all these guys wearing fraternity shirts? And he's like, oh, oh, we're in a fraternity. Don't worry, you'll join. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, I won't. <laughs> and uh, so he, you know, he thought I would, but I never did. But I oh. said, well, can I still live here? Because, well, Duluth, you couldn't advertise that you were a fraternity. Like there was no sign out front. It was just a house. Oh, like and, informal. Yeah. I mean, they they banned like the advertisement of it because I think it just got too rowdy in the past. And so I ended up living there and... They said I could live there, but I had to leave every Wednesday for their meeting. Oh, got it. Yeah. Wednesday it, evening. Mm-hmm. But it was cool because then I was able to like bring my friend who was pretty popular. Is this this lady who, you, this, this oh, girl you met? No, no, no. Oh, I, she's out of the picture she, at that point. She, she was pretty much out of the picture at that point. By the time you transferred? Yeah. Okay. She was just some motivation to go there. And then okay. I ended up just, you know, hanging out and like, Figuring out my whole college scene, and then yeah, we had a, quite a shaping event. Our first weekend in the house, mm-hmm. we had um, we had a party, as you do, and um, at about midnight, some some shady characters rolled in, and they had a dog, and and the dog had a chain around its neck, and they were um, I don't know, it was kind of weird, and I don't know if kids are going to be listening to this. I mean, anyone could listen, really. Yeah. So, so you know, just the PG story is that a fight broke out, and I ended up, you know, it was just horrible, and mm. I ended up having to like pull guys off my friends, and it got pretty gnarly. And uh, it was, you know, the cops said later that it was probably all, all happened in a minute, Whoa. but it seemed like an eternity. You know, these guys were just. Beating us up, basically. They came into your house. Came into our house with a with a dog. With a dog, with a chain. And they called it a smiley, and they would wrap it around their their hand, and then the chain, the chain with a lock on the end of it, and then they would. Bat, so they, that's crazy. People's. How old were these guys? They were our age, but they weren't going to college. They they hated all the college kids, and so they were just on. They the, were like local Duluthians. Oh my gosh, just pissed off. Pissed off. Mix didn't and, like college kids. Apparently, they did it to a house. Like the weekend before. No way. Yeah, they cut the electric line, like shut the power down in the house and then just came Dude, in and beat gnarly. a bunch of kids up. So they beat us up. Like they broke our table and used the legs to beat some guys with. And like, That is crazy. Yeah, it was really uh, disgusting. And yeah. it was a wake-up call. And it was, um, you know, I got out with like a golf ball-sized um bump on my forehead yeah. from getting beat up by a guy and dang and uh well, what was the what was the lesson there like what well was the it? lesson was just that you know there's just there's all types of people with problems in the world and it really drove me into going into psychology wow and my roommate was from um one of my roommates tino uh martin hedenberg actually and he was from sweden mm. he was a foreign exchange student got it and he was majoring in psych and uh he just kind of inspired me too. I, I liked a lot of the books he was reading, and yeah. so I was figuring out which path I wanted to go down in Duluth. Right. And so 
it just, you know, and I didn't like math. And mm-hmm. so I just wanted to avoid that. And I wanted to, and then I got into philosophy too. So I minored mm-hmm. in philosophy. And, and then I lived there for another year or that I just lived there for one year, my sophomore year. And then my junior year, I moved into a, a tiny little apartment by myself. And uh, I just got really into my studies and I worked at a restaurant as a waiter, a really cool restaurant, like, and that's where Trampled by Turtles started. Whoa. Mm-hmm. It's called Pizza Luce. Wow. And it was a big pizza. Well, they, were, they weren't big, but they were hip. Like there was a hip pizza joint from Minneapolis and they came up to open a, a restaurant in Duluth. Wow. And I got to be like in the hiring, like I was one of the first hires of that restaurant. At Pizza Luce. At Pizza Luce before they even opened the doors. Dang. And they built this restaurant for bands to play and like. Wow. And they they had like the pizza, like the the line, the cook line where they tossed the dough and stuff was all on display. Like it had glass like there, you know, you could eat and watch them throw pie and then they put it in the, the, the oven was like a conveyor belt. So you'd watch your pizza go in. And then I was a waiter and we had our T-shirts said late night with Pizza Luce instead of late night with David Letterman. Oh, nice. So it was kind of kitschy like that. And then yeah. they had a bar and um, and really good pizza. Like everyone just loves it still to this day. You go to Minnesota, you talk about Pizza Luce, people will know what you're talking about. Dang. They rave about it. And they got weird pizzas like the baked potato pizza and, you know, so just different stuff. And they, they were the first like making vegan pizza and like for all the veggie heads and we had a lot of dreadies and, you know, it was a Duluth culture. It was very hippie. and So it was was fun to go to work. It was super fun. Like it was, it was a party and yeah, Trampled was actually called Simple Junction Mm. and they were a, uh, they had a drummer and he still lives in Duluth and he missed that train, but he doesn't regret it. He's got a nice family and he's a cool guy. And uh, they, so then Trampled was their side project. And so they actually, <clears throat> they first performed on stage at Pizza Luce. They, they used to, Trampled by Turtles, actually used to sit in chairs. Like when they performed? Yeah, for probably three or four years, maybe even more. Because like, after college, I'd see them out in Seattle and they'd still be um, sitting down. Mm. And they literally, all five of them across the stage, sitting in chairs playing. And they did that for a long time. Still, probably sounded good still. But. Oh, yeah. they were. But it was funny because then they finally stood up. And I, I, I think I was, I feel like I was there the day they stood up. They, no. <laughs> they were still sitting in their chairs at the tractor, which is a really cool venue yeah. to see a band in Seattle. Yeah. Um, in Ballard. And uh, I remember it was shortly after that that they, they finally stood up. They got rid of the chairs. And that's Whoa. that's when they started to get bigger. I wonder what uh, changed their mind. Yeah, what, what I'll have going. to ask them. I'm still you, good friends with them. Oh, really? Like the whole, oh yeah, the whole group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I went to college with all of them. Wow. They actually played Pizza Luce's like our. They played our company party. Like whoa. So yeah, there was a guy that uh, manager. His name is Scott Cover. What's up, Scott? And uh, I assume he's gonna. Listen to this. <laughs> yeah. And he was super chill, and he had a he had a solar powered cabin up the North Shore. So Duluth is like beautiful, and then you do the North Shore Drive, which is on the lake, and then about ten miles out of town, Cover had this cabin. We just called him Coves, Cover, whatever. And um, he was older than all of us, but he had a um, two Pyrenees Mountain Dogs, and he had 
a cabin, solar powered. So we'd all go out and hang out out there. And then that's where we would have our luche party and trampled would come and play our party, you know, with off solar power. Wow. And then, um, they'd play till the power was drained. And then they had another stage set up, uh, next to the pond in the back 40 there with trees all around. And, and then they had little, um, candle lights around the stage and wow. they play acoustic for the rest of the night oh that's magical yeah it was a magical college experience dang and um yeah and i graduated and uh and um and then uh right shortly after that i ended up um uh getting interested in this uh wilderness instructing job mm. for camp thistledo which is a the department of corrections wow it's a boys camp uh, and they had girls there too, but uh, they had a 90-day program and a three-week program. Mm. And so I went, and my best friend Aaron, uh, he went to the University of Minnesota down in the cities, and I still would see him all the time. Like we'd go down and hang out, and then in the summer I'd usually live down in Minneapolis, like on the U of M campus I'd okay. for a couple summers Oh, nice! down there just to get more culture, like the music scene and longboarding and yeah i mean we were into all that kind of stuff sweet and um so he him and i actually applied for the same job and i got it and he didn't and then uh he ended up moving out west to olympia washington to do water quality uh research in the olympic national forest Mm. and i started doing this three week on three week off gig uh wilderness instructing with groups of you know six to twelve adjudicated youth and so the cool part was that we took them uh to the boundary waters in the summer and i had a lot of experience up there so we'd go out for uh two weeks into the canoeing with the kids you know yeah and then in the winter we do uh nordic skiing pulling sleds and going from like every other night you'd spend a night in this little cabin that they had built you know no electricity just like you and the kids in the candlelight talking about problems and wow and uh so this was a year-round camp yeah so we would literally we'd um we'd have a fire on the ice you'd have to build like a raft of logs one way and then the other way and you'd have a fire at night and we'd all sit out there and like talk and have therapy or whatever and then we'd look at the stars and it was beautiful and it'd be like negative 30 Jeez. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah and then um oh, man. And then we'd have to auger through the ice to get water. And then we'd have to get the kids to bed in tents. Every other night we were in a tent. And so the kids had like these government issued like um, puffy jackets, you'd call them, but they couldn't move. It was funny. They <laughs> these huge puffy jackets. And the kids, you know, they didn't know, like they were kind of outdoorsy. They're from Minnesota, so they could hack it. Well, it was tough. And then we'd heat up their Nalgene bottle you know we'd heat, boil a bunch of water at night put in the analogy and then they'd put that down by their feet oh to keep them warm <clears throat> yeah that's smart and then we'd build snow quincies at the end of the camp and right near camp we'd build this huge like a bulldozer would come out to this parking lot like a dirt parking lot and just bulldoze a huge section and then we'd bring the kids and dig out these snow quincies and then we'd sleep in them wow and uh one night we had 55 below zero Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and my boss was on the radio with me like every two hours. Like, if one kid loses a finger, this whole operation is going down. Oh I'm like, I got it, boss. Yeah. I'm like 22, <laughs> yeah. 23, you know. Like, what would you, would you check their fingers? And- no, I was like, 
I was in a snow Quincy and it yeah, was, it was pretty. You know, it wasn't warm, but it was it warm was enough. Warm enough. Know? And you know, we'd all wear like a bandana over our face. And a snow Quincy is that is that like a snow fort? Yeah. So it's like you know, imagine they like if you were just out in the woods, you would just. We made one in high school too. You just just for because I had an outdoor education class, so you just pile up as much snow. You spend like three hours just piling up snow, and then. And then you kind of pat it, pack it. You hit it with the shovel. You know, you're packing it down as much as you can. Kind of, yeah. you don't have to pack too hard because the, the gravity just kind of settles it. Okay. And then, um, and then you just start digging out a hole, like towards the bottom. Oh. And then, on, you, so it's on top of the ice because you've. Yeah. Well, normally you wouldn't snow. do it on the ice. Or on, on top of a bunch of snow, right? Yeah. And then you dig in and you just kind of make yourself like an igloo. You know, wow. you just make yourself, and you can actually carve out benches. Like you can, depends on how much time you have. You can make it nice. So were these kids at this camp by choice or was this mandated by the government? No, that was the best part. They send us out in a 15 passenger van to drive all around Minnesota and pick these kids up. And I literally chased kids like out the back like you, door. No way. Like if you yeah. pick, them, pick them up from their yeah, residence? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's intense. <laughs> yeah, it was so intense. Whoa. It was fun. Like the moms would be like, he ran that way. Let's get him. <laughs> Did you ever, would you like tackle the kids? Like what was you, what were your instructions? No, you wouldn't tackle them, but okay. you'd like run after them. Run after like, them like, yeah. hey. You'd be like, coming. hey, man, you're coming. And then eventually they would be like, all right. I mean, they knew it was coming. Yeah, okay. You know, they didn't want to go, up. So it wasn't like a surprise operation? Like, a, we nah, got I mean, it wasn't like soup. It was a surprise to them. Their parents knew we were coming. Oh, so but a lot of the times the kids had no idea. Yeah. And then here comes these guys. Right. And yeah. sometimes we just pull in and pick them up from jail. Yeah. You know, from juvie. Dang. A lot of times. And then- it would be this most silent four-hour drive back up to camp because the camp's in the middle of nowhere. It's like if you you know where Ely is, where you put in for the Boundary Waters, mm-hmm. it was about 40 miles south and, and probably 10 miles west of Ely. Mm-hmm. And literally the kids would be like, what would, what would happen if I ran? I'd be like, you'd die. It was just nothing. Yeah, and that was the truth probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Toke was this town, T-O-K. It was like a, a Native American word. Um, it was a. T- it was literally just a four-way stop, and I think there was like it wasn't even a gas station. It was a one building. I don't even remember what it was, but that that was the closest like thing that was on the map. Wow! So it was it was pretty out there, and uh, I did that for almost two years. Wow. So I did all I was, year round. All year. So in the in the spring and fall, we'd hike on the on the Superior Hiking Trail, wow. which is a two hundred mile beautiful trail from Duluth all the way up to Canada. And so we'd do sections of it. So I got to do pretty much the whole trail. I mean, I did a lot on my own in college and um, before I even had this job. And uh, but we'd do it in sections, and the kids walk real slow, you know, so you wouldn't do a whole lot. I can't remember how many miles we'd cover. But you were only walking maybe seven miles a day, you know, tops. Whereas if you were to go out with your buddy, you'd do fifteen to yeah, twenty somewhere sure. in there, you know. Yeah. So so that was and then uh when I was doing that, then I had three weeks off to travel. So that's when I started oh, to right. really travel because they'd pay you I, it paid pretty well for you know, kid directly out of college, you know, you'd make a couple grand and then you wouldn't spend any money for three weeks. 
So then you'd have all this money in your bank account and you just like buy a ticket to Costa Rica or whatever. And just go Would off. you do that? Yeah. So that's what I would do. Wow. So I traveled a bunch during that time. And then um, while I was doing that, all my friends from the downhill team at the U of M ended up moving to Schweitzer, which is uh, northern Idaho. Mm. It's a ski resort. And they, uh, my buddy got the job as a um, the marketing director of uh, Schweitzer. And so he got a big-time job, so everybody followed him out, and they rent they rented an A-frame on the side of the mountain. And my first trip out there, like, I hung out for, like, almost a week and a half, and that's when I first, like, really got into downhill skiing. Like, bought a pair of fat skis, whatever. They aren't that Schweitzer. fat anymore. Yeah, at Schweitzer. And then I ended up being like, man, I just want to live out here, like, can I move in? And they're like, yeah, the entryway is available for $150 a month. <laughs> so I, I lived in the mudroom. Wow. Which was, it was the not the not the entrance we used in the winter because it was, the deck was out there and it was all snowed in. So I just lived in the closet basically with a glass pane window on the door. Coats, there were literally coats in there. Wow. I, just, I just slept on the floor. On the like the floor floor. Yeah, you got to imagine I've come from living in a tent. Like I literally camped for a year and a half. Whoa. So then it was just natural for me to sleep on a thermo rest. Whoa. So I just slept in there. And then and then I moved on up like uh, shortly after that. Uh, they rented a house on Lake Ponderay, which is right there. Sandpoint's the town. And Sandpoint's beautiful. And it's got this lake called Lake Ponderay, and it's massive. And it's got like the deepest known parts of a lake in America. And like they do submarine testing there. It's this massive lake. And the guys ended up, same guys ended up renting a house on the lake, and they had room in the garage. So wow. I moved my, I had a bed at that point, and I moved into the garage and I lived there. How many months after uh, Schweitzer is this now? I'm still at Schweitzer. Oh, you're still at Schweitzer. Yeah, I lived there for two years. Oh, but you, but wait, what is the garage? So that, um, so then they they had moved from the A-frame after the first year into a house on the lake, and they and then I moved into the garage there. So, oh, okay. Oh, so this is still Schweitzer, but yep. a different. Yeah, Schweitzer. Sandpoint's the town. Schweitzer's the mountain. Okay, I get it. Yep. And um, so I I lived in the garage, and I worked at a bar. I was a bartender, and then uh, it was the biggest nightclub in Sandpoint, you know. It's called yeah. Synergy. Hit, man. And I made more money than doctors in that town, <laughs> working three nights a week. No way. And actually, really funny is my friend Ned ended up being the DJ at that club. Oh. And that was when my humps was really big, so he had to play <laughs> that song like every other song. Oh, my gosh. We hated the scene. It wasn't our scene, but we were making money. Yeah, what, like what was the scene? The scene was like... Redneck meets mm, hipster meets hippie meets. Okay. Like, and then just just then, I mean, there was rich, there was rich like money. Like Harrison Ford has a, owns one of the islands in, oh. in Lake Ponderay. Oh wow! So you're surrounded by that, and then Coeur d'Alene is one of the wealthiest cities in America. Is like 30 miles south mm. of Sandpoint, and now there's like you know Jack Nicholson. Or Jack Nicholas, like golf course there, and like it's yeah. really, um, 
it's it's changed a lot. I assume I haven't been there in a long time. Mm -hmm. But I did two years there, and then I met a girl, and and she was from there, and she was um, just graduating college and wanted to wanted to get out, wanted to get away, and I was down. I was like, were you looking for like were you looking for an opportunity? Yeah, yeah, because I had done a West Coast like college tour like for postgraduate. And I was always attracted to the West Coast. And um, I was just kind of over the scene of um, Sandpoint. And Got it. I was ready for some change, and she sure. was too. So we ended up going to Portland, checking that out, and sh she didn't like it. I loved it. I would have moved there in a heartbeat. But mm. um, uh, I think it was too far away from her parents. Portland, Oregon? Uh-huh. And then we ended up going to Seattle like a week later and checking that out. Mm. And she was like, oh, this is it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I had a lot of friends in Seattle. Yeah. Did you like the Seattle vibe as well? Yeah. And I I was lucky because they call it the Seattle freeze and you can move to Seattle and have no friends for a long time. What do you mean? Like it's tough to meet people in Seattle. Why? Because people all have their own thing going on and they're all very nice to your face. Whoa. Um, but they'll be like, yeah, we should hang out. And then you just never... Talk again. And there's a nickname for that called the Seattle Freeze. Yeah, it's called the Seattle Freeze. Oh my gosh. It's real. That's and then, but I was lucky because I just had a bunch of like kids from the ski, the U of M ski team, other kids had moved out there and started their life out there. So I just walked into a whole scene and they were all teachers. So then I, and we played volleyball. Then my whole life changed into volleyball. And wow, we played so much volleyball. And I was a bartender. I ended up managing a, a restaurant and a bar. Wow. It was like a family restaurant kind of deal with sports on the screen and it was an open situation where there was like the whole restaurant and the bar was like part of the restaurant. Oh, that's cool. And it was cool. So I worked there for probably four years. Wow. Yeah. And I Wait, and dating the, the girl. The no, we broke up like probably like a month after we moved there. To Seattle? Yeah. Did When you guys moved from Portland, was that the first sign like, okay... This probably isn't the right I, person. You know, I could say a lot of things about her, but mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, I won't. So yeah, it just didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, and Got that's it. and that's all for the better. That's great, kids. If you're out there and it doesn't work out, it's probably for a reason. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, in my life, and then I got into biking. You know, I bought my first like kind of cross road bike there, and I got really into um, biking because I had. I knew I liked biking from um, my middle school. I had joined the mountain bike club because I, I was a caddy. My first job back in Robbinsdale was to be a caddy when I was 14. And I made, I saved up all summer and I bought this giant mountain bike, you know, the brand giant. And it was probably 650 bucks, but it was a big deal to me, you know. And I had it. I went riding one time in the Mississippi River Valley with the mountain bike club, single track, so awesome. And then I got home, or I like a week later, I got my bike stolen. No way. Yeah. Oh. And I never really biked again until Seattle. Wow. And I picked up this bike, and it was kind of crazy because I bought it off Craigslist from some guy, and it was a specialized. I remember it was pretty nice, like, cross bike and uh i just remember riding it for like a week and then i went off a curb and the the frame broke but it had a sticker on it from the shop that he had bought it at 
So I brought it to the shop and I said, hey, I bought this bike here. And they were like, oh, well, and the frame cracked? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, well, let's send it in to Specialized and see what happens. And I was like, okay, I didn't know anything about yeah. shops or bikes or yeah, like the scene or warranties. <laughs> yeah. I just was clueless, you know. Yeah. And uh, and then they called me like literally. I had almost forgot about the bike, and they called me like two months later, and they were like, "Hey, man, Specialized hooked you up. Come on in and get your new bike." And I was like, "What?" And they're like, "Yeah." And I I went down there, and it was a brand new bike. The only thing that wasn't brand new on it was the handlebars and the seat. Were from my old bike, <laughs> Dang. and so now I had this like twelve hundred dollar. It was like way big upgrade, disc brakes, everything. I was like, dang. So then I got into biking, you know, and I, a lot of my friends were um, bike messengers there. What is that? Uh, where you like go between building to building on a bike and oh. deliver mail. Oh, and um, yeah, so it was just a different, a whole different vibe. And then, but I still had a ski pass. Um, to Stevens Pass, and I bought a Subaru, you know, and a Rocket Box, and it, I was I was really dedicated to skiing still while I was there. So, how old are you at this point? Um, let's see, I'm probably like 27. Got it. You know, 26, yeah. 27. So this is like four years after. Yeah, it was right before the Great Recession. Mm. I moved there, and there were cranes everywhere, and everything was happening, and Seattle was booming. And then I think a year after I was there, like the crash happened and everything crashed and there were no cranes and nobody was making money, but I was still making money because I was working the bar scene. And so I saw the Seattle freeze right there. You know, I'd always see people come in and having trouble making friends and all that. But we had a neighborhood vibe and it was a, South Lake Union was a really cool neighborhood back then. And this is before Amazon moved in. Like Amazon was still in this uh, old hospital, like a loony bin out um, kind of south of, south of town, south of Seattle on a hill. It was a really ominous kind of, it was the Amazon building, you know, and it was an old like funny farm basically, I think. And, you know, people were kind of whispering about Amazon back then. And then Paul Allen just started building like all these massive buildings in my neighborhood and things were just Paul, I was like the Microsoft yeah Paul Allen like the investor he was a huge um he owned the Seahawks and he was a huge um investor and then Amazon was working to I mean he was building those buildings for Amazon basically oh you know for the tech boom that was coming that we were seeing happening so then all of a sudden, you know, my I was there till I was about 32 and I was still a bartender and I just didn't want to be a bartender anymore. I didn't want to be a 30-year-old bartender. And then I certainly, you know, I just the whole time I was like I got to get out of this. Like from the from the moment you started bartending, you did you were like I don't want to be doing this forever. I think I was totally into it until I was about 29 and then I just realized that it was, you know, it's the golden handcuffs we called it. Because you'd make so much money that it was hard to leave, you know. Oh. But I wanted more out of my life. Like I, I definitely wanted to have a career and I wanted to work with kids and I knew that. Oh. So I just kind of like, and Seattle's a depressing town. I mean, it's good in the summer, but literally you don't see the sun for like 45 days in November and December. Wow. I mean, it can be kind of rough, you know. Yeah. Um, 
but I always skied. I, I kept up with that. And, and then I just decided the only way I was getting out of this was by making some big change, you know? So I sold everything. I had a Mercedes, like I had a totally different life. I had a, I had a apartment in one of the buildings down there. It was all brand new. I had a gym. I had access to everything. I was right next to REI headquarters. Like the the flagship store was right there. Wow. Like it was the music scene, everything. I was connected and and I just I just wanted to change. So I sold everything and that bike was calling to me the whole time. Like the bike was telling me that that bike wanted to go on a mission, like a journey. Mm. You know? And so I sold everything and my buddy Johnny, who I'd met at Pizza Luce, he was a bartender back in the day there, worked with me in college, was a good buddy of mine. And uh, I just remember he called me one night at like one in the morning or something and I was just getting off work and we just started talking and he was over in Europe on his bike after we had talked about doing a bike trip. He had, he had actually done it. He like left everything and he went over there and he was cycling across Europe and doing couchsurf.org and yeah he was just meeting people and hanging out and he was like Elmbaum you got to come you got to come like just just do it and i bought a ticket that night a one way ticket to Copenhagen wow yeah and then That's it was deep. real april fools i left on april 1st <laughs> and uh i sold everything and i left and all i had was my bike in a box and a trailer in a box that i hadn't even opened you you brought the bike to Copenhagen? Yeah, I flew to Copenhagen with my bike and a trailer, a Bob trailer. What is a Bob trailer now? Bob trailer is like, it's just a sweet little trailer with a little suspension on it and it hooks up to the rear axle of your bike and then it's got oh. a one wheel. Okay. It's a one wheel trailer with a big flag wow. and a yellow bag, you know. I got rid of the yellow bag right away because I was like, you know, rob me. <laughs> <laughs> so... I started in Copenhagen and I, I just cycled for about four and a half months. Dang. And I just traveled. I did, uh, I ended up just, I didn't even have a plan when I got there at all. And I just let everything come to me and I, I ended up doing the Rodvig Trail, which is like this popular trail that folks do with their family. They go from Berlin to Copenhagen, usually. Uh, but I did it in reverse and I did it in April. So there was no one out there and it was cold and windy and um, so I cycled all through, I, I did a lot of like side trips in Denmark and, and then I got to Germany and, and then I booked it to Berlin and I spent like a week in Berlin and, wow. and then I biked to Hamburg and spent and a week there. It's just wherever Yeah, hostels, camping, I had a tent, I had everything, you Dang. know, and, uh, cook, I could cook on my own, like, and then, um, I just met people everywhere I went. You know, so then I'd end up on someone's couch or I did have the couch surf on my phone. Mm -hmm. um, and I did that a few times, but mainly I just I just met people, you know, anywhere That's I went. Cool. And then I ended up going to Amsterdam and cycling through uh, Belgium and then into France. And then I went wow. across uh, to Dover, England, and I Dang. met up with Johnny. Wow. And we we spent a week on like, it was like the Shire. It was like Hobbitville, you know, with this, I don't know, massive like cabin this guy had built. And he had all these little cabins and it was like the beginning of Airbnb almost. That, that's kind of like, but he was on couch surf. 
and that's how Johnny had met him. Mm. And he was he had been there for like two weeks. And so we just hung out there and they had like a greenhouse and they all the sustainable food and like we, you know, collectively cooked together and sing songs by the fire. Like <laughs> this went on for a while and I got to work on a wood lathe. Like there was weird, just weird stuff. A going wood on. what? A lathe. What is that? It's like a spinning um blade almost, and then you take a piece of wood and you can like make a bowl out of it. Mm. You know, to be pretty aware it's like a, lose a finger like ceramics like throwing clay but so yeah wood. sort of like that mm-hmm. and then oh. johnny and i started cycling into wales we got to cardiff we were almost to cardiff and uh he found out that he had um gotten a woman pregnant in amsterdam and he, oh, had, to, he had to turn around and go back how did he find out she like emailed him or something <laughs> <laughs> and so, what? yeah, we were outside of Tesco and he looked at me and he said, I can't do this anymore. I got to go back. Oh my God. And he didn't even tell me what was going on. He at just, the time? He just was like he, left me. Was he embarrassed? He must. I, I think he was just, he was freaked out. Freaked out. Yeah. yeah like, oh, like, I can't believe. He yeah. was super freaked out. So he left me and I was just like, we were going to like cycle around the world was our plan. No. You know, we were just going to keep going. Wow. Because I had sold my Mercedes and I had like money in the bank. Yeah, you, you were know. ready. I was ready. But then it ended up just turning into my own trip for the rest of it. And I had already done my own trip on the front end, so I, I already had my experience. My gusto, like my my confidence was still high to just do whatever. And so then I cycled over Snowden, which is like a national park mountain, pretty awesome, and then to Fishguard and took a ferry to Ireland. And then I cycled the southern coast of Ireland through Cork and and then I got to Killarney and I met some people in Killarney and I spent a month on their couch. Wow. And uh, I spent a month there hanging out and cycling and I, I was in a 100-mile race. Like I just joined in. I didn't pay <laughs> like a bike race and all what? kinds of fun stuff. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And uh, I spoke the old Gaelic. What? Yeah. What do you mean? Like you learned the language? Yeah. So I hung out with uh, Narina Fleming and Charlie O'Brien. They were roommates. Who are, I don't know who they are. Two of the just quaintest Irish folk you'd ever meet. Wow. And the Irish are just like so welcoming. They bring me to their barbecue, you know, and meet the family and we'd all sing a jig and they were all musical and, and just the language itself is musical, you know. Yeah. And um, we just would enjoy the day. Like, and Charlie would go busk. So he would, he played banjo and sang like a, just like a, Midnight Devil, like he would just be up there and he'd rake in all this quid from the the tourists, you know. He would sit on this rock and he was always wearing a suit and a hat. You know, he's just the dapperest Irishman. Wow. And people just throw money at him because he just was the cliche that they all wanted to see. (laughs) You know, and then he'd come back into town and be like, let's party. You know, like it was all on Charlie. And uh, he's on iTunes. You can check him out. What's his name? Charlie O'Brien from Killarney. I got a lot of fun stories. Wow. Charlie's hat. <clears throat> One night it got knacked. Knackers are uh, thieves. Oh. Sean, somebody knacked my hat. Oh. So, you know, it turned into this whole drama of trying to find Charlie's hat. And Wait, made, in like the town, ta- in the small town? Or? Yeah, in the small Irish village. Wow. His hat went missing. We We went to the town next door the next day. We were all over looking for this. Very important hat. Was it a distinct, like, did it have Oh, yeah, it was a distinct Irishman's hat, you know. 
Wow. Yeah, you just be messing with Charlie's hatch, not with your own soul. We were having some good crack. That's what they call a good time in Ireland. Oh, it's crack, wow. you know. We were having a good crack last night, and Charlie yeah. lost his hat by a knacker, you know. So, <laughs> so it ended up being that we watched a Mother Mary procession every Sunday, you know, and it's a big parade where they have the Mother Mary, you know, and they parade down. <laughs> the, it's just wild. It's a whole different world. Did you and, pick up an accent when you were there? Oh yeah, but they'd always tell me to shut up because I was <laughs> terrible. I'm to this day, all the kids at VMS tell me I have a terrible accent. I, I like it. I think yeah, it, it's but, fun. You know, I can. I guess I can get way more into it, but um, we ended up finding his hat at the church. No way, at the church. Did just, he forget it there? No, so, a knacker so, did steal it. A knacker stole it, but sometimes things will return, and sometimes they end up back at the church. Wow. And actually, we had given up looking for the hat at that point, you know. Mm. And um, and uh. They they brought me to the church just to tell me about all the children that died in the famine and they were buried out behind the church and they were showing me the owl like there was a big fake owl on the top of the church you know to ward off all the other owls or something I don't know but anyway we walked out and there was the hat on the fence mm. yeah so we got the hat back and then you know it was my best one of my other best friends uh, Derek who was I also went to high school with and was on the U UMD the college I went to he was on the downhill team there and uh it was his wedding was coming up mm. and so I was like well you know I was in the wedding so it was back back in the states back in the states and actually so it was, was in San like Diego because that. that's where his wife was from so mm. I flew back and that was that and Dang. uh so then I ended up um I ended up uh living in Minneapolis for I'd say I was there for about a month. And my best friend Aaron was still living in Sandpoint, Idaho. He lived there for seven years. Wow. And uh, he had met a woman there, and she was on a rotation doing um, physical therapy. She was just getting into her career. And so he met her uh, while he was in Sandpoint, while she was there, and then she her next gig was Vail. Mm. Yeah. And so he moved here with her to Vail. And then they that ended up falling apart and in a bad way. And um, he was a mess. You know, my best friend was living in Vail, total mess, had to move out, like had to get his own place and all this. And I was just coming back from Europe and we had hung out at the wedding. Obviously, he was at Derek's wedding too, where all three of us are like best friends to this day. And um, And so he just said, Sean, what are you doing with your life right now? And I was like, well, I have no idea. You know, I was working at a restaurant. Near and, my, I was living in my mother's house still yeah. at that point, you know, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. And um, he called me up and said, hey, man, I need you. And I was like, oh, heck, yeah, I'm like, I'm coming. And he said, I got a job and I got a place for you to live. And so I moved to Vail. Whoa. Yeah. What year is this now? That's nine years ago. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I worked, started working at the Double Diamond Tune and Skis. That's where Aaron went still is to this day he's wow. a shop manager there and you know he taught me how to tune skis which is like basically like being a blacksmith of the ski world you know and it's a trade so you have to learn it took me uh, about a year or two under him you know like wow. learning all because he'd been doing it at schweitzer the whole time um so is there there's a lot to it yeah i mean to be really good 
to, wow. to know your stuff. Like what, what would separate a beginner <clears throat> ski tuner from a seasoned veteran? Uh, hand injuries. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. My, like what, you're busting my, your hand up a lot? Oh, yeah. My first two years, like I just have cuts all over and why burns. And just because you, you're just not skilled yet. You know, you, well, well, the equipment you're, you put yeah, your hand in. Yeah, there's machines and there's fire and there's scraping and there's metal and there's banging and there's hammers and there's screws and there's guns, screw guns and there's just all kinds of tools and Whoa. learning how to, you know, operate the machine to put the right grind on and then learning how to edge and all that by hand, you know, and like just getting it all dialed in and learning all the different things you can do to a ski to make them, you know, fast and mm. and repairs. I mean, core shots and bindings and, you know, just like fixing stuff. Just like yeah. learning how to fix stuff. You know, you're always yeah. you're always fixing something. Mm. You know that that people don't think can even be fixed and then you fix it, you know. It's like keeping people out there, keeping people skiing. Yeah. And uh so I did that and then I and then I started Daryl was working there and then he moved to Christie Sports and so then he brought me over and then I worked under Daryl and Daryl is like another, you know, tuning master. Like he just knows his stuff so well too. So then I worked with Daryl for a couple of years and then I finally got my own shop in Westvale Christie's. So then I, for two years, I ran the shop at Westvale Christie's and, um, and what does that entail? Like when you get your own shop? You just you're the you're the guy, you know, you're doing the scheduling and you're you're tuning less. Um it's more like administrative manager. No, you're still tuning a lot, but you're manage you know, you have guys now and I mean you're still obviously you're tuning. Yeah, but you're overseeing a team. Yeah, yeah. You got people working with you and you're mm. you're in charge, like, you know, it's kinda like you don't have somebody I guess I just didn't need a mentor anymore, you know. I didn't, yeah. I didn't need. I didn't have any more questions, oh. you know. And then, um, and then, but all while this is going on, back up six years, like I ended up mountain biking one day with Aaron in Moab, and through a Match dot com date that he had had one time in Red Cliff with a girl. Uh, I remember he came back from that date, and he was like, "Oh, you, you know, this girl." She was pretty wild and interesting. You'd, you'd like her, and um, so he, this was his date. Yeah, he's like, he, he went she's on not one for date. me. She's not for me. But I know the guy. Well, kind of, but it never ended up being that. But oh. it ended up just being that I met her. Okay. Uh, in Moab, like she stopped by and just like told all these crazy stories about this magical place called Denali National Park. Oh. And you know, I ended up becoming Facebook friends with her. And every time I'd see, she was like doing some wild stuff when she wasn't working. And so that's how I first came to just even know about the place, you know? Mm. And then, and then it took another year before like she was in Moab because that's where she lived in the off season from Denali. Um, and she was dating this guy that um, worked up there too. And then friends from Alaska would come down and stay with them. And then they were all mountain biking one day and they were like, um, just, I don't even remember how it came up, but it came up that I had a CDL because when I was in Seattle, I was a duck captain. So not only was I bartending, but I also was a captain of a duck. What, of a, 
like a duck boat? Yeah. What's and wait, what is a duck boat? So a duck boat is a World War II vehicle landing craft. But, no way. But then they turned them into a tour boat, you oh, know, wow. in Seattle. So oh. I was I was actually Captain Quacktastic. No. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I was a tour guide, like so you know, nonsense. That, in in Seattle. In Seattle oh, for, wow. for three summers. Oh. I was a duck boat captain. <laughs> and uh yeah, I was Captain Quacktastic, five tours a day, ninety minutes, Badass. and just tell jokes. And you know, you the Space Needle is six hundred and five feet tall, and it wrote the restaurant on top rotates on a gear ratio of three hundred and sixty to one on a one horsepower engine. Wow! The elevator falls at the same speed as a raindrop. The concrete underneath is the longest continuous pour of concrete in America. It is still drying to this day. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, I love that. You know, and we'd be like, and then you'd go, and then you just go through all through downtown, and off to the right is the home of Seattle. <laughs> Seahawks. I put I put on a Seahawk wig and like glasses. Wow. I had like forty hats in a bag, you know. Oh my And then gosh. the whole time you're DJing, you have this little. Oh, sick. Yeah, so you get to you get to play your own music, you know. Yeah. Thank God I'm a country boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got cakes on the griddle. Oh, that's you know? fun. So you just do all this. That's soul. a blast. Sounds it like was, a blast. It was crazy, and I would dance in my chair like how many people? Madman, you know what I mean? And then oh yeah, and we would go through town and like you know. I mean, so it rides in the water and then it can yeah. up on that. So okay, then, so. so then you you do like sixty minutes, and you traffic and all that, and then you you go through Seattle and then you get out to Lake Union, and then you become a boat. Wow. You just drive right into the water. Nuts! That and must then, be weird the first time. Yeah, I mean, there was like a, I don't know. I think I trained for like a month. No way. Yeah, and I had to get a captain's license, but it was DUKW specific. DUKW is the acronym that the military used, and that's why it's called a duck boat. Oh. And DUKW all stand for different parts of the vehicle. Mm. Um, like I don't remember what they are, but uh, yeah. That's so I was a duck captain, and I made you know money hand over fist. Every, everyone thought I was either a Jack Black or his brother. <laughs> oh my God. And. Yeah, it was, but it was, oh, it was hard. Like it was summer in Seattle, it'd be 90 degrees and you'd be sitting over a 600 degree engine and, you know, those things would break down and then you'd just be stuck like on the side of the 99, which is the freeway and you'd have to like entertain 36 passengers <laughs> until you got a replacement duck. And that only happened to me twice, but, you know, there was it was a stressful job. Wow. It was fun. I mean, duck captains were all pretty wild. Nice. Um like how often were you working there? How many days a week? Probably like four. Okay, cool. You know, and 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 bartending and bartending. So okay, and then so still working like four nights a week. Nuts. So I was making big money. Yeah. Okay. That's but working just you know just nonstop. Everything you're doing is physical. Yeah. Everything you're doing is like got to be on. You know, do you, constantly on. You know. Do you think you were working too much? Like when you look back. No. No, I think it was a good time to be working a lot. Nice. I don't I don't think I was working on like a career, but I was definitely working on just being me. Yeah. Know, I was having fun and awesome. It was enjoyable. Um and it was something different. You know, I always like to I guess while I was in my youth, I definitely like to 
be the guy that was always doing something kind of wild. Wilderness instructor, oh, what's Ellenbaum doing next? Oh, he's a duck captain? Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Biking across Europe. But yeah, oh, what's he doing now? <laughs> oh, he's off doing something weird again. Oh, he's such a weirdo. You know, while everyone else is like getting married and yeah, having yeah. kids, you know. Mm. I'm out there. So it's like an identity. It was a, definitely an identity. Yeah. Yeah, I see that now, you know. And I knew that when I was in it, but it drove me. It drove me to do, you know, things that were different. Wow. And fun and just like wild. So then, yeah, so so I ended up meeting, so to that effect, like then yeah. I was out mountain biking and Aaron was like, well, Sean has a CDL. And they were like, what? You should come drive a bus in Denali. And by the end of the day, I was filling out paperwork and wow. I had a interview set up, but then it turned out that I didn't have air brakes because a duck doesn't have air brakes. It just has regular brakes. You know, oh, you need a pads. separate certification for that? Well, yeah, to drive these buses up in Alaska, they have air brakes and you have to drive over like, you literally, it's it's the gnarliest road. It's got like a 1,500 foot drop cliff on the side and like buses like can't even go, you can't even get two buses to go by each other like you have to it's like a dance that they do you know and so mm. you have to have minimum i think a year or two of air brake which isn't that hard like i had driven a bus with air brakes when i was a raft guide here on the shoshone oh. which i did my first year that i moved here oh i was a raft guide so you were able to clock in a year there so i did like i technically could have probably figured it out but i, I had come to the point where i was going to tell the raft company that they put all this effort into training me and then I would I only did it for one summer and I would have had to test with their bus to get the air brake license and that was my thought I was like well how am I going to get my air brake license I'd have to lie to them and use their bus and then ditch them that was mm. one option but I was like no and and also knowing after hearing all the stories the bus drivers I didn't really want to drive a bus without the experience, you know. Yeah. Because you have all those lives in your hands. Right. And if I screwed up or something like that. High consequence. High consequence. And so they had this other job that they needed somebody for. Mm. And it was called dispatch. And uh, I was like, what's this? You know, and then I saw the job title and the description and it was everything I was not. Like, you know, like highly what? organized, highly like all these things. I was like, that's not me. But they're like, you'll be great. And I was like, okay, why? Because I have a pulse, you know? And they're like, <laughs> yeah. basically, we need bodies. We need bodies. But um, so I interviewed and they brought me up and they, you know, I didn't come up there till my first year. I didn't get there till like June, which is like prime season. I'd, so I just got thrown right into the pit, right into the fire of dispatch, which is like essentially the nerve center of the tour and bus transit operation at Denali. If you're not familiar with Denali, it's a, it's a, <clears throat> uh, I think it's 6 million acre national park with obviously the tallest peak in North America, Denali. And it's a, only one road in, it's 92 miles long. And you can only drive your personal vehicle the first 15 miles on the pavement and then it turns to dirt. And after that, you have to be on a bus. So there's a whole transit line that we run through the park, like um, probably 30 buses a day that are green. They're called the green bus. And like you go, you buy a ticket. I think now it's up to like 45, 50 bucks for a ticket. And you buy your ticket for however far you want to go into the park. So most people at least go to Ileson, which is the visitor center. That's 66 miles into the park. And 
And then all all while that's happening, there's also a whole tour, you know. So then there's the brown, the tan buses. So if you're on a tan bus, you're on a tour, and there's two different tours, blah, 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 yakety schmackety. And anyway, we send over 100 buses a day into the park. And mm. so I was the dispatcher for all that. And so wow. you're, you're doing driver schedules. You're dealing with the driver mainly. You have over 120 drivers living in this little commune at the front of the park, and that's where I lived. And so you're living in a dry cabin. You know, you have a roommate, It's and then you're eating at a dining hall. But... You know, it was like this whole new world. Like I went up there and that girl that Aaron had went on a match.com date was, you know, she was like my, she was like, she was, your, she she was, was my person. Like, yeah. well, she brought me into the scene, you know, she, she connected me to everybody. And then when I got there, her and her boyfriend were there to greet me off the train. Like oh. I took a train from Anchorage to. So in between Denali. your first trip there, mm-hmm. she had found someone else and started dating. No, she had, I think she was. Already dating someone before I even got there. Yeah, she was dating yeah. Ren. Got it. Yeah, they're still together to this day. Awesome. Yeah, there was never any Romance. attraction. Yeah, I mean, she's a beautiful woman, but I was. She was pretty wild, and yeah, she. Um, we just became really good friends. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and then I ended up just through her. Like her family took me in, and like you know, her uncle um, who passed away a couple of years ago. He was awesome, and her and his wife, her aunt, like took me in. So when I was like coming, so then for the next like six years, I would fly up there and I would stay with her aunt for like a week before I'd even and wait go up to Denali because you fly to Anchorage. I would fly from Minneapolis to Anchorage. Okay, you know I'd always leave Colorado, go home for like a week, see the fam, fly up to Alaska. Her aunt would pick me up. And then I'd hang out, and then I'd go to the park in like April. Okay. And then I'd work from April to the end of September. But wait, what exactly did the dispatch do? So you, you were stationed at the. You said you were stationed at the front. Yeah, so I was at the front of the park for four years, and I was the nerve center of the park. So you're dealing with park service. You're talking on radios. You have handheld radios. You're talking to every driver that leaves the yard. Oh, so you're just organizing. Yeah, you're just like, and then there's all like, imagine you got all these people in these hotels and the tours, and they're looking for people, and you got names, and you got to deal with the tour directors, and you got to, but it's all over the phone. It's all. Communication. Yeah, digital now. Yeah, and you're dealing with emergencies and breakdowns. Like the buses when I first got there would break down all the time. So then mm. you have to rally a rescue bus and you gotta like got you gotta figure out it's just like it was just madness. Yeah. For ten hours a day. Wow. Indeed. Would you like would you go home tired? Oh yeah. And when I started at four thirty AM. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So what would you do in free time? Uh so then you get three days off. And that was the beauty of the job is that you'd work four ten hour days and then you get three days off. And it was really hard to sleep there because I lived in the dorm. They have a dorm. Like you have to live in the dorm your first year or two before you actually get into a a dry cabin. And there's four cabins in a cabin. And those are nicer because the, there's that's four where the, like rooms in a cabin? Four rooms in a cabin. And that's where the drivers would live. And so they are just straight up all about making money and like, and being quiet. Like they go to bed earlier. All the support staff would party a lot and they'd be in the dorms and it'd just Got be it. so loud and yeah. I had to get up at 4 30 a.m every morning so I, was, I went out of my mind the first year you know yeah like I literally took my tent and just like found a place to camp uh, just to just to get away get from, some sleep yeah exactly so I did that 
And it, it's every year got better. You know, every year I got a yeah. nicer cabin and, you know, you you butter up HR and you get what you want, you know what I mean? And but like, yeah, what would you do in the free time? Would you like go out? Yeah, so then I would just hike and, and I would do camping like every weekend for three days. You know, you'd, you'd like you'd get off, usually you'd be tired on a Friday. I might go for a bike ride, like I have my bike up there. So I'd bike and go to bed and then get up early, you know, with all your gear and just go, you know, go into the park. And so the park is separated into all these units. And so then it's a trailless wilderness and, and you just get off the bus wherever you want and you plan your own trip. And, you know, so there was all these different places and, you know, you, you get word from other people, like you got to check this out, this waterfall out here and you got to hike six miles to it. And you know, six miles doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're carrying a, you know, pack and then you're hiking through tundra, you know, you can only do five, six, seven miles a day, you know. People come there and think they're going to do all this and then they're sorely, like, yeah. sorely mistaken, you know. Yeah. And then you're hiking on gravel bars and there's grizzly bears everywhere and there's, you know, moose and there's... What are uh, <clears throat> some of the most magical spots in Denali? <laughs> <laughs> well, Shangri-La is where I ended up living my last two years, so... Um, through the dispatch in the front end, I learned about the other dispatch job, which is out um, at Ileson, the visitor center that I mentioned that's 66 miles into the park where most visitors, like that's their yeah. end goal. Um, and it's it's this state-of-the-art building, well, back probably like 10 years ago, and it's built into the side of the hill. It's built to like just be part of the earth. And so when the buses get there, there's like a parking lot for maybe 10 buses can fit. And so the buses are cycling through because they're on a time schedule. The bus only comes in and stays for 30 minutes, but imagine it's a beautiful day and the mountain's 32 miles away and it's booming, it's right there. And so you have to have a dispatcher out there because the all these people get off all these buses and then their bus leaves and then they're just there. So you have to like coordinate them getting back. So then you have to like get a count and you have to have a running count and you're always talking to people and getting their names when they're ready to go back but everyone wants to go back at the same time at the end of yeah. the day so it just because it's a it's a crazy job like it's so intense you know yeah when you're running around you're the clipboard guy they call you but um you have to you end up having to be kind of more like a i wore a marshal badge and like lay down the law, you know. Yeah. You have to like be pretty be serious. authoritative. Yeah, and a this bit. is the this is the deal. And you're messing with people a lot, you know. You just get to mess with people. <laughs> yeah. Like it's hilarious because they're scared. They're just out in the oh, middle yeah, of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. There's bears, you know. They're like, right. They're, yeah. yeah, you know. There's you like you could say this is pretty fun. So yeah, I ended up, and then one of the the best perks. So the guy that I talked to a lot about doing the job, he did it for seven years out there. Um, is that you get to live 55 miles into the park in a little place called Toklat. And it's um, it's a national NPS. So I didn't actually work for NPS, National Park Service. I worked for Aramark, which is uh, oh um, yeah the main concessionaire in the park. Yeah. So they're the ones that run the buses and do the tours. Wow. So I worked for Aramark. So they're contracted by the NPS. Like I was, con yeah, Aramark's contracted by NPS and... And like ten year contracts, mm -hmm. and so Aramark had a dispatch cabin out there with all the other cabins for the NPS employees. So everyone else that's living out there are the rangers that work at the visitor center. They're like interpretive rangers, and then there's like 
um, just straight up rangers that drive around in a truck with a shotgun and like monitor things. And, and then you've got wildlife techs living out there and you've got, um, and then you've got a bunch of scientists that roll out and then mainly you have road crew. Like, so to maintain that road is like so much work. And so you've got people living out there. So there's, it's a community of about 30 introverts, I'd say. Hmm. Um, there is a fire pit and there are some social engagements, but for the most part, you're just living out there in this little commune of NPS and everyone's working like the road crews working at night, you know, so it's real transient, but you kind of, you know, your neighbor and you, I lived with the other dispatcher. So Jesse, he and I shared the job. Like when someone was always working, so you'd have three days on four days off, four days on three days off. Mm -hmm. That's how we did our schedule. So then I, you know, you end up doing all these solo hikes because I never got to actually hang out with Jesse. Yeah. Other than like a couple hours, like it was always funny because when you get done with your four days of dispatching, you're so tired, but you're so happy, and you have the key to the dispatch office, and you have, you like come in and you find the other guy and you like put it around his neck and you're like ha ha ha, you know <laughs> sucker, and then, and then and then you just see like the sadness like just like i gotta go back to work oh no you know because it's a madness job like when and then you develop this love-hate relationship with the mountain when it's sunny and the mountain's out you know you're gonna have a rough day because you know all these people are gonna come Mm. and get off the bus and be you know there but half the time i mean if you know about denali like they call it the 30 percent club 30 percent of people see the mountain what do you mean? Then the rest of the time is shrouded in clouds and fog. And it's, mm. you know, never gets above 60 degrees most days in the summer. And it rains and it rains. Like it'll rain for almost a whole month sometimes. It's real hit and miss and things change. And then you've got fire and then you're working out there in the smoke and you come back and your lungs hurt. Like it's just, it's a real wild job. Wow. But you're at the last outpost of man. Like beyond that is Wonder Lake and beyond that is Kantishna at the end of the road at 92 miles, you know. But beyond that is just remote wilderness, just pure Alaskan wilderness for forever. Dang. Yeah, so you're just out there. And there's something like, you know, the nearest grocery store until my last year was because they finally built a grocery store in the little town of Healy, which is um, just north of the park entrance, about 15 miles. And they finally built a little grocery store there. But before that, for five years, I was there. The closest grocery store was Fairbanks, you know, which is two hours away. And then if you're in the park... It takes you an hour and a half to get out of the park on a bus oh. to go to Fairbanks to get groceries. So, so we'd do like a Costco run and two Costco runs a year and live yeah. on that. And then we had a greenhouse. Grow some. And grow some veggies. And So did you like that solitude? Though? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Like what would you think about? What would you, like when, let's say you'd go out camp somewhere, would you bring a book? Would mm, you write? Yeah. I'd read books. Um, I did. I'd do a lot of bike packing trips where I'd ride my bike and with my pack on, and then ditch the bike like on the road, and then go hike for a couple of days. 
and then come back to the bike and bike home. And I do a lot of day trips. Like living there, you're just in it, you know? Yeah. And you have a warm shower and a cabin to come home to and dinner to make. Wow. So I did a lot of day trips. Like I did a lot of just, and the sun never sets. So you've got 24 hours of daylight. Oh, no way. Yeah. In the, like in June and July. Yeah. And early August. Yeah. So you can just hike till whenever, you know, one, oh. one in the morning is the same as two in the afternoon. Wow. Nuts. So you just go and, you know, I did a lot of like just summit a mountain and, you know, come back and cross a river and hopefully, you know, make it. Wow. Because you just, there's no cell phone service. You're just out there. So in all your experiences, you've had some immense wilderness experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you describe yourself as an uh, introvert? Would I describe myself as an introvert? Yeah, because you work, I mean, you spent yeah. all those years as a bartender. I that- think um, I was so extroverted for so long that it was nice to have the balance to bring it back in, to be more introverted. And spent a lot of time figuring out like what I wanted to do with my life, you know. Mm. And you do a lot of philosophizing. Like you just yeah. sit there and you think about the whole world and you think about the state of man and you think about the universe and you think about your mind just wanders and you have all day sitting on a tundra bench in the sun, like it's just nothing. You know, there's just, it's just nothing out there. There's a whole lot of nothing. Like, you know, you might see some caribou, you might, you might see a grizzly off in the distance or you might see him real close up. Hopefully not too not too close. Yeah. But um yeah, it's a it's an intense place and I I really recommend that everyone get up there before they get old and can get out into the park and see the beauty and you know that was my main goal was just to to facilitate more and more people enjoying the beauty that we're surrounded by, you know, and that most people aren't surrounded by. You know, they come there and they like, whoa, they didn't, didn't even know things like so that foreign. existed. Yeah. yeah, and speaking of foreign, you have so many foreigners. Yeah. You know, you've got people from all over the world coming. Wow. So it was enlightening. And um, and then, yeah, and I spent six years doing it. And then, you know, you're also thinking like, what am I doing with my life? You know, you're sitting there thinking, man, you know, at some point I either have to become a driver and be a driver and drivers don't go in the park. They don't go camping. They work six days a week and they do laundry on their seventh day because they make bank. I mean, like a tour driver can make 30, 35 grand in a summer. Wow. You know, good ones. And there's people, uh, I could go on and on about Tenali forever, but the the drivers there that are full-time, like that's their gig. They've been there for 30 years, you know. Wow. And they're cool people and they, they, you know, they have seven months to do whatever and they do rad stuff. And I'm not saying that they're not outdoorsy, but when they're there, they're, they're, they're driving, some, they're yeah. working. Yeah. And I didn't want that, you know. Right. So I saw that and I just said, well, I can go, I could probably do this dispatch one more year, but you're literally running up concrete stairs and onto buses and counting people. It's like, you just feel like a glorified head counter, you know, yeah. and uh, it's a thankless job for sure. Mm. And um, 
And then I, uh, while I was out there, um, Miss Boder told me that the Nordic position was open. And, uh, you know, I just, I was living here every winter. So this is my life. Like, this is where I feel home in Vail. And so when that job came open, it just spoke to me because that's where my old passions lied and working with kids again. And so then I got into the VMS scene and then I just started just falling in love with the school and falling in love with the what's going on here, you know. And and so I just, I can't, you know, when you when you have all that time to think, you, you learn how to manifest things and like you learn how to be positive and just like I'm going to do this and this and I'm just going to every morning I'm going to wake up and do something in that direction, you know. So I became a substitute teacher in the district here and like I just decided that this was the career path I wanted to go down. Finally, I'm, in, I'm 40 now, you know, and but I, I wanted more stability. I didn't want to pack. I got so sick of packing every six months and leaving and doing that. And I and I feel like I did every single hike that I wanted to do in the park. And it started to get repetitive. And you're doing a lot of solo hikes. And, you know, it was just time for some change again. And so I got my foot in the door here. And then uh, they offered me to teach summer quest last summer and work with some different kids, a different population. And so that was another foot in the right direction. And I really enjoyed that. And then... Um, and then I was actually funny. I was in Moab again with Miss Bodirk and the whole downhill team. We had a little reunion and one of the women that was there worked at VMS and she was having a baby and she was there because her husband was on the U of M ski team. And she was like, Hey, Sean, do you want to take my long-term sub position while I'm, you know, having this baby? Mm. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, there's another foot another step in the right direction, manifesting wow. the positivity, manifesting the job. Wow. And um, and then I came in and I just had the attitude that I was going to do a good job. And and this was the place for me, you know. I, I just, I love the the kids there and I like the, um, the coworker situation and obviously the food and, you know, just, just I, I, and I like... I like the challenge, you know, something yeah. different and step your game up, you know, wow. and um, wear a tie, totally different, you know, like so. <laughs> and and then it was like, well, that job was coming to an end and I was like, how do I keep this going, you know? And mm. Like gotta, she was, she was she, coming back She to was work. coming back and I knew when she was coming back, kind of, you know, but mm. um, I was just like, all right, well, you got to find your niche. What's the need? You know, what can I do? What are my, what's my skill set, and where do I fit into this picture? And so, you know, with a little help from people in the building that, you know, really liked what I was doing and uh, had good things to say about me, I just proposed being a long-term sub and they kept me around and, and mm. here I am. So. Wow. And what do you think is the, the end goal? Like what, if you manifested to in total, mm -hmm. where would you be? What well, would you be doing? So my goal was just to to get like a long term job here. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm back in the stage where I get to figure it out now what it is that speaks to me. And that's the beauty of the job that I'm doing is I get to walk a walk a walk a period and 
another teacher's shoes. You know, I get to mm. kind of see what is their day is like. So, you yeah, know, today you, I was with first grade, second grade, ninth grade. No. Like, you know, every day is different. All different subjects. Yeah, and I like the, you know, it's got some facets from dispatch. Like I'm scheduling and I'm doing all that and I'm dealing with chaos. So I feel like I excel in those situations. Awesome. It it feels right for now and, I, and I'm... I'm happy with this, but I know that it's another stepping stone. Mm. And to what what end, I'm not sure. Wow. Mm-hmm. And when you look back, when you reflect just on the big picture of your experiences, mm-hmm. do you view them as phases or how do you, how do you um, categorize these different moments and experiences you've had? Hmm. That's a great question, Zach. Um, they feel like chapters. Mm. You know, when you, when you open... When you open the book of your life, you know, there's just, there's, there's all the prologue, which is like your, your upbringing and your, you know, the foreword of the book. And then you get into the meat of it, you know, and that's, I think the meat of it was definitely Denali and and Mm. then the Seattle and all that, you know, and now in, and then, you know, I'm not in into the ending by any means. <laughs> right, right. I'm still in the meat of it, but it's like, you know, when I when I left Denali, I felt satisfied, and that chapter was over, mm. and I don't feel like I need to go back. Mm. I, I I left no page unturned. Wow, you know, and so now I'm in this new chapter, and I'm not sure what'll happen next, but I have a lot of uh, high hopes and. Things are going really well, so that's that's where I'm at, and I'm in my, you know, ninth year here in Vail, and I still love skiing. Um, I love mountain biking even more, and I love fat biking, you know, and I love Nordic skiing, and I love coaching those kids, and so I've just got a lot of things in my life right now that make me happy, like pure joy, you know. I, I leave the race with those kids, and I just feel this joy, like. And I leave practice and, you know, I just feel energized. And I'm going on a hut trip tomorrow with uh, sixth graders, you know. So it doesn't get much better than that. You know, keep it wild. Wow. Well, Sean, uh, thank you so much for sharing these experiences with me. Um, I think there's a lot of meaning to be found in your journey um, and I think you've done a lot of amazing things so far mm-hmm. and uh, look forward to seeing, you know, where the, where the rest goes. Yeah. Thanks man. And now you're part of my journey too. You're in my book, buddy. Yay. And I can't wait to flip the, uh, flip the microphone on you. Yeah. yeah. I've, uh, I'm definitely, I'm sure you've got a lot of good stories too. And, and, uh, you know, just hearing about your experience in the Boundary Waters and, you know, obviously the, the trip you took with your boys and, through Canada and uh, and 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 sharing that, and I, I sense that in you that you have that connection to the earth, you know, and to the wild. Yeah, man. So, well, we have a lot more to share. Yeah, let's. Uh, anytime, you're always welcome. Come downstairs. <laughs> door, open door. Yeah. Open door, man. Yeah, man. Right on. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you uh, listening to my life story. <laughs> 
And uh, there you have it, folks. Another episode of In the Area with Sean Allenbaum.